Welcome to All Sides with Anna Stever. Ohio's March primary is less than a month away, and many Republicans remain undecided on who should challenge Sherrod Brown for our state's U.S. Senate seat. We're sitting down this hour with all three Republican candidates to hear what they think about immigration, inflation, abortion access, and more. Joining me now is Cleveland businessman Bernie Moreno. Born in Bogota, Colombia, Moreno immigrated to the U.S. just before he turned five and officially became a citizen at 18. He's a businessman who made his fortune building a multi-state franchise of car dealerships. He's also the father of four adult children, a grandfather, and a blockchain executive. Mr. Moreno, welcome to All Sides. Well, thank you for having me, Anna. I want to begin our conversation with one of the biggest issues of the 2024 election season, immigration. You've made border security a hallmark of your campaign, but you also rejected and said you would have voted against the border deal worked out by members of Congress. Can you walk us through your thought process on that? Yeah, I would suspect that anybody who was in favor of that border bill either wants open borders, wanted a political victory, or didn't read the bill. So I would encourage you and your listeners, if you really want to study the topic and understand why it was a terrible, terrible deal, you got to read it. Uh, which sounds intuitive in the business world, but in politics, unfortunately, uh, people don't actually read these things. Uh, the border is a very easy problem to fix. It really is. Uh, it requires common sense. You can't just come into this country illegally. That's not allowed. You can't just come here because you want to make more money. You can't come here because you want a free government benefit. The loophole in our system of immigration is asylum which is a very technical legal word, which means that you're being persecuted in your home country. So you're seeking refuge or asylum in America. So the law currently says that anybody in America, whether at a legal port of entry or otherwise, can claim asylum. So the fix that I propose, it's very simple, is that if you come into the country through a non-designated port of entry, meaning across a river, over a wall, whatever the case may be, that you're immediately returned and you forfeit your right for asylum for life. So you cannot come in by cross by paying the drug cartels to cross the river. Now, if you come through a legal port of entry, we schedule your hearing, so you have due process rights, but you can't come into the country until that, that case has been heard. Those two things, Anna, solve 80% of our border problems. Because what you're doing is you're taking away the loophole, which is to allow them to cross the river, illegally raise your hand, claim asylum, and then win a whole suite of benefits that you get from being an asylum seeker. We have to finish the wall to prevent the getaways. We have to uh, wipe out the drug cartels. And we have to make certain that we have no amnesty and deport anybody who's here illegally. That's how we fix this thing. That's what we will do next year when we take office. I do want to ask about asylum because right now the backlog is, what, eight to 10 years in some cases. So you're suggesting that they wait outside the U.S. Is Do you have any thoughts on how you would speed up that process a little bit? Because, like, here you go, wait eight years for your court date feels like a really long wait. No, absolutely. And there's some uh, common sense thresholds, questions that should be asked of asylum seekers, which we're not doing today, to weed out the obvious ones. Like, for example from a designated port of entry and say, hey, I'm seeking asylum. Are you being persecuted? Well, not really. I just want more money. Okay, well, you don't qualify for asylum. Uh, we don't need to uh, schedule a hearing date for you. Uh, but the idea that we allow them to come into the country while their claim is being heard 
is ludicrous. And again, I think most Americans, when they understand what I just laid out, we would have broad consensus about this. So you've been endorsed by former President Donald Trump. Was it important for you to get that endorsement? Yeah, of course. President Trump is very popular in Ohio for good reason. He was the greatest president of my lifetime. Did a lot of great things for Ohio. We had low interest rates, low inflation, uh, low energy prices. We had safety and security around the world. We had a secure border. Uh, so we we were on a path to prosperity. Wages were growing for Blacks, Hispanics, women. Uh, so we had uh, economic prosperity under President Trump. People are yearning for a return to that. That's why I think he's going to win again. But we don't only have the endorsement for President Trump. We have Jim Jordan, J.D. Vance, 14 other senators, 11 of the 12 counties, including Cuyahoga and Franklin, that have endorsed in this race, endorsed my campaign, even though I'm the outsider in the race. Charlie Kirk, Christine Vivek Ramaswamy. So we've got we've got the uh, endorsements uh, from every corner of the party. One of the jokes in politics when they ask, like, do you agree with somebody on everything is, you know, do you agree with your spouse on everything? So are there places where you disagree with President Trump? Well, the, the reality is that the core of the agenda, the America first agenda is where we're completely aligned. Let's put the interests of America first. Let's have a safe and secure border the way I just outlined. That's common sense. Let's make sure we're energy dominant here in America. Let's put parents, not bureaucrats in charge of schools. Let's make certain we have peace around the world, not fund other endless wars. So we are 100% aligned with the agenda. And that's what we're going to do and advocate when we, uh, again, when he's back in the White House and I'm in the Senate, that's what we're going to get done. Do you agree with the former president that there was widespread fraud in the 2020 election? Well, there are certainly lots of uh, things that we don't know the answers to. But the one thing we do know for certain is that big tech and big media conspired to hide stories that were negative to Biden and suppress stories that were positive to Trump. Let me give you two examples. 70 plus percent of people did not realize we were energy independent for the first time in 75 years under President Trump because the media never reported that story. Conversely, on the Hunter Biden laptop story, that was supposedly Russian misinformation. And we know now that not only was it not Russian misinformation, that story was much worse. And you got to remember, Anna, 43,000 votes in three swing states is what determined this election. People talk about millions of votes. That's a, that's a popular vote. But as you know, what determines the election is the Electoral College. So 43,000 votes in three swing states. And is there any doubt in my mind that if the Hunter Biden story was told accurately, that that would have changed the result of the election? There's no question in my mind. But as far as voter fraud? Well, we know Pennsylvania changed their laws unconstitutionally, not my opinion. That was actually accurate. Uh, the legislature in Pennsylvania allowed voting to happen after Election Day. We know that in Nevada, they went from never having mail-in voting to only having mail-in voting. Uh, all Americans should be on the side of elections that are secure and that are consistent. Now, let's just say in this particular Senate race, there is a massive election denier that's been an election denier for a long time. His name is Sharon Brown. In 2000, he said that Al Gore won that election. In 2016, he said Hillary Clinton won that election. To this day, he said Stacey Abrams is the rightful elected governor of Georgia. So we have to get to the point of consensus in America where we have an election, we see a result, the loser agrees, the winner agrees, and we move forward. That's really important for a Democratic Republic to survive.
Let's talk about the ruling from the Alabama Supreme Court that frozen embryos are children and those who destroyed them can be held liable for wrongful death. Do you think the court reached the right conclusion? No, not at all. Uh, I think that IVF is a lifeline to a lot of parents. I know a lot of friends that personally used IVF and as a result have uh, kids, great families today. I'm on, I'm on the side of more kids, more families. Uh, we're not even hitting our replacement rate for population. So uh, any policy that encourages more families and more kids, I'm in favor of. I've been blessed by four children myself. I was one of seven. My dad was one of 11. My grandfather was one of 23. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so I'm a big believer, big believer in families. On the topic of abortion more generally, uh, do you think the issue should be left to the states or would you support a national set of rules for access? Well, I think predominantly this is a state issue, as we saw in Dobbs, but there are things that we can do on a national level. Let's make it less expensive to have a child. Really, really expensive. I've seen that with my daughters with three grandkids that I have now. It's really expensive to raise kids. Can you imagine, Anna, having seven kids today? What it would cost, right? The sheer magnitude of that. So let's bring the cost of having children down. Let's make sure we have good jobs so that uh, uh, we have strong families. I think we can agree with that. As you know, uh, women, we need to make certain that women have access to good health care. We need to make certain that women have equal access to birth control. That's not the case today. Men have a very different path to birth control than women. We should equalize that. The other piece of it is let's make certain that adoption services are more readily available. Let's make certain that we fund pregnancy centers that help moms, not only while they're having a baby, but way after the baby's born. And in terms of a federal role, I believe that we can get to a place of consensus where after 15 weeks, there's some common sense restrictions on abortion where we get rid of elective late-term abortions and we don't uh, kill each other about this issue that's been so divisive over the last 52 years. I think, generally speaking, most Americans can rally around uh, what I just talked about. I want to shift our conversation to artificial intelligence and social media. So you've said in the past that unchecked corporate power can be problematic. Do you think Congress needs to make regulations that would protect children from social media algorithms? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, first of all, you need somebody who understands technology to regulate it. That's the first problem we have. We have a bunch of octogenarians that don't know how their email works, and they're going to go out and uh, regulate artificial intelligence. That's crazy. So the value I add to the Senate, I built a company that is in a technology space. We were the first commercial application of blockchain technology in America. So I understand the tech really, really well. So we have to strike a balance between absolutely having innovation happen in America with proper guardrails. I'm going to work with industry to make sure that we create that technology here, but it has the appropriate amount of oversight from the very beginning. We didn't do that when social media came out. When social media was first introduced in 2004, call it, uh, we had leaders that didn't know what that was, didn't pay any attention to it. It wasn't until 2016 that they, of course, course corrected the other way. So we have to make certain that we're encouraging innovation with proper guardrails and give the tech companies actually what they want. They want to have regulatory certainty. That's really important. 
in, I want to play a clip from a podcast interview that you did in 2019 where you talked about a number of different gun control issues. We can't say this is how many magazines a gun can have. I mean, like, yeah. what gun do you need to have 100 bullets in it? That doesn't mean I'm going to take a goddamn gun away. Right, right. But do you really need 100 bullets at one time? Yeah. Right? I mean, do you have that kind of ADD? <laughs> Are you in that kind of hurry? We're like, no, 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 I want to shoot 100 bullets. Exactly. Okay. There's a lot of deer right. out there. And by the way, are you going to eat a deer that has 100 bullets in it? <laughs> it strikes me you get my point. It's, it's that right. zesty. Right. So can't we just say... No, by the way, then the other argument is that, that won't solve one gun. True. Locking my door yeah. isn't going to prevent intruders, but it does make you a little safer, make it yeah. a little bit harder. So can, can we do that? Can we have some types of guns that you say, it's kind of like porn, PG, right? R, right? Not R. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can't we say it with guns that says, oh, okay, that gun, that, yeah. I mean, there yeah. can't be some common sense that says yeah. that one probably is out, right? Yeah. Without infringing anybody's yeah. rights. Can't we have universal background checks that says, hey, yeah. and by the way, if you're crazy, maybe you shouldn't have a gun right now. Do you still stand by those statements? Yeah, I mean, Anna, listen, I wasn't a public official then. Uh, this was a riff on a podcast. At the end of the day, here's what I know, especially since that time, is that uh, our Second Amendment rights are not for hunting. Our Second Amendment rights are to protect us from the tyranny of government. The kind of overreach that we saw during COVID is what motivated me to run for office in the first place, where you saw government quite literally locking us down, telling us we couldn't go to work, how we could go to work, what we had to put on our face, what we had to put in our body. Uh, the reality is, uh, being as somebody from South America, I've seen what happens in countries like that where a government takes weapons away from its citizenry and tyranny follows shortly thereafter. So this is not my words. This is the words of James Madison, but I agree 100%, which is uh, an armed citizenry is the best defense against an ambitious government. So we have uh, to make certain that we preserve our Second Amendment rights. I will be a staunch defender of the Second Amendment. And as somebody who gets death threats now on a daily basis, and I would want my wife to have as many bullets as possible in her gun, because quite frankly, every bullet that she has is one more chance for survival. So uh, that's where I stand. I will be a fervent uh, supporter of the Second Amendment in the United States Senate. I also want to give you an opportunity to explain the judgments against you in the Massachusetts courts for failing to pay salespeople over time. Yeah. So this is uh, the favorite topic of my opponents. Uh, to be crystal clear, here's the main fact you need to know. This affected every business in Massachusetts that had commissioned salespeople. This is not a lawsuit about my company. It affected everybody, hundreds of businesses. It was a regulation change that was done, uh, not through law, and then affirmed by a court, again, that did not pass through law, that made the ruling retroactive. I, I, in my case, we didn't have late hours. We weren't even open on Sundays. So we did not qualify for a class action status because the vast majority of my salespeople loved working for my company and knew they were treated extremely fair. These were salespeople making $10,000, $15,000 per pay period. They were doing really well. And, and except for, you know, we had a couple, uh, you know, a, few, a few that decided to file separately. I thought we were in the right. They could not prove that they worked overtime because they didn't have any records that showed that they worked overtime. Uh, but here's what happens, Anna. When you're an outsider, when you're a business person, you run for office, 
this is what the media does. It's what the left does. They go after every part of your business. I'm very proud of the business I built. I built a billion dollar company from scratch. And the people who worked at my company loved working there, are proud to work there. And I'm proud to have the support for the vast majority of the people who worked in my company. That was candidate Bernie Moreno. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Anna. Coming up, Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose tells us why he believes he's the man for this job. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. We're talking this hour with the three Republicans who want to take on Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown this November. We're now joined by Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose. He's an Ohio native who became a Green Beret in the U.S. Army, serving in Kosovo, Iraq, and on our nation's southern border. His life in public office includes eight years in the Ohio Senate and nearly six as our Secretary of State. He's also the father of three daughters, an Eagle Scout, and a distance runner. Secretary LaRose, welcome to All Sides. Thank you so much, Anna. It's a pleasure. I want to begin our conversation on immigration. You said you would have voted against the Senate's border security plan. Can you explain what you didn't like about it? Yeah, I think this is a classic example of what's currently wrong in Washington in in some ways. Um, It's a bill that was called a border security bill, but really didn't accomplish much on border security. It did fund a lot of other priorities, and those can be separate standalone conversations. Some of them, I think, are laudable. Others, I I think, are not. But when it comes to actual border security, giving money to sanctuary cities, that doesn't fix border security. When it comes to border security, uh, what we need to do is is actually have the right policies in place. Like, for example, the Remain in, in Mexico policy, which is a smart one. Again, the asylum process is meant to give people asylum when they are in danger in the country they came from. When somebody passed through three other relatively safe countries in order to come to America, are they really seeking asylum or are they trying to use the process to get into our country? So these are really things that we have to wrestle with. And the so-called border security bill didn't fix those. I actually want to ask you about one of the provisions in the bill, because I know it's something that you've talked about a lot. So there was provisions targeted at fentanyl trafficking, including ways to hold chemical supply companies in China and cartels in Mexico accountable. So is that the kind of thing that you would have supported as a standalone? Oh, absolutely. Listen, President Biden met with uh, Xi Jinping in California just a couple months ago, and they talked about this, but there really were no teeth to it. We know where this poison is coming from. It's precursor chemicals from China that are concocted together in Mexico and smuggled across our border. I served on the U.S.-Mexican border. I was a volunteer as a young soldier with the 101st Airborne Division. This was 22 years ago. And um, when I was down there, we would catch people coming across the border with children, precious children, and we would find bags of cocaine in their diapers because they they thought we wouldn't look there. It's even worse now because it's fentanyl, and this stuff is deadly in such small doses. It's killing 200 Americans a day. So— 
You sought the endorsement of former President Donald Trump, but he ultimately decided to endorse Mr. Moreno. For those Republicans who value Trump's opinion, why should they pick you? Well, I think that uh, what the key difference is, is um, I'm somebody that would work well with President Trump, uh, but work for the people of Ohio. My my oath of office obligates me to uh, work for the people of Ohio. And I agree with President Trump on the vast majority of his policies. I'd be a good ally of his in the U.S. Senate. And uh, Um, Somebody that's proven it, right? Because everybody calls themselves a conservative. If you're running in a Republican primary, you're going to say I'm a conservative, but talk is cheap. We need somebody that actually has demonstrated that they're not going to go to D.C. to be popular, to be accepted in the D.C. uh, cocktail circuit or something, but to actually fight to, to put this country back on the right track. And I've demonstrated that, not just said it. And you've talked a lot about how well you think Ohio does its elections, but what did you make of the former president's allegation of widespread voter fraud in 2020? This is where I've been very clear. Uh, There were mistakes made in other states, and you learn from those so that you don't repeat them in the future. Here in Ohio, we're really the example of how to do this right. That's why I helped members of Congress write a bill called the ACE Act. It means American Confidence in Elections. It's got over 200 co-sponsors in the House. Unfortunately, it will almost certainly languish and die in the Senate uh, because the folks in charge there don't think this is a priority. But it would really take Ohio's best practices and export those to other states, things like checking IDs, like maintaining accurate voter rolls. Just simply taking dead people off the voter rolls, which we do on a monthly basis, is something other states don't do Also having paper ballots that we can audit in Ohio, all these audits, we audit every election, even just bipartisan administration of elections. It seems like in D.C., Republicans and Democrats can't agree what day of the week it is. But in Ohio, it's a thoroughly bipartisan process. D's and R's working together to run elections. That's not the case in every state. And so these are things that we need to improve uh, throughout the country. I want to talk about the ruling from the Alabama Supreme Court that frozen embryos are children And those who destroyed them could be held liable for wrongful death. Do you think the court reached the right conclusion? Uh, Listen, I'm pro-life and somebody that believes that as a society, we should affirm life and protect life. But when we're talking about in vitro fertilization and the ability to do that, this is something that we should be fully embracing. We need to be uh, affirming people that want to start a family. A, A strong society only happens if you have strong families. And so for people that want to form a family that need IVF uh, or, or want to use other fertilization treatments, or for that matter, have uh, support after uh, they bring a child into the world, those are the things that we need to be focused on. It's not good enough to just be pro-birth. You have to be truly pro-life if you have the belief set that I do. And this is about affirming life and helping people form families and loving families. We all came from one, and this is how we have a strong society. So then it sounds like you disagree with the ruling. You know, I've not read the full ruling. And uh, what, I, what I'm what i concerned about is that it could have an impact on making it harder for people that want to receive this kind of fertility treatment. And that's not something any of us should want. I want to talk about abortion more generally. So you opposed the reproductive rights amendment that Ohioans passed in November. But you also ran into a little bit of controversy over it when it came out that you had consulted with groups that oppose abortion access on how to draft the language voters saw when they went to vote. So can you kind of walk us through what happened there? Yeah. First of all, uh, I did oppose what was passed eventually last year, and and I think that um, it goes way too far. Listen, even for pro-choice Ohioans, when you look at the substance of that, it makes Ohio one of the most extreme states in the nation. And so I, I think that this is one of the dangers of legislating by constitutional amendments. Something like this shouldn't be done in a constitution. That's not what constitutions are, are for, really. But of course, as a public official and as the chair of the ballot board, 
it's my job to listen to diverse opinions and then to form the best decision that I can form. And so, of course, I welcome input from groups on all sides of issues. And that's what I take. Of course, as a pro-life Ohioan, uh, these are my values. And I wanted to make sure that the ballot language was accurate and honest. I think it was completely defensible, the changes that we made. For example, Ohio's law in hundreds of places refers to an unborn child as an unborn child. Now, I was taken to court over this and, and, and we won because essentially they wanted the word fetus. We wanted the word unborn child. They mean the same thing. Fetus is a Latin word that means offspring. And so we use the word that's common in Ohio's revised code. Also, uh, a pregnant patient versus pregnant woman. Now, come on, I'm not a physician here, but I'm pretty sure that only women can be pregnant. And so we use the common language that people uh, would find accessible and understandable when we wrote that ballot language. I want to move on to the fact that you're the only person in this race that with a military service record. Do you think that should matter to voters? And if so, why? Oh, I think it matters quite a bit. Um, I enlisted when I was 18. When I was uh, 18 years old and I raised my right hand, I made a commitment that this country is so precious that it's worth dying for. There are a few things that are that precious, right? Um, but America is. And so that's a, a demonstration of commitment, but also the things that I learned in the military, the practical uh, lessons of leadership, of servant leadership, really leadership as an act of service to others. And um, also just that knowledge that I have about how our nation's defense works. I served on the Mexican border, so I am very knowledgeable about how you secure a 2,000-mile land border. Think about this, Anna. In the United States Senate, we've got 52 millionaires. There's no shortage of wealthy people. But what we don't have is any Army Green Berets. There, there's never been a Green Beret serving in the U.S. Senate. I'll be the first one. I'll also be the only member of the Senate who still serves. Uh, recently, the senator from Alaska, Dan Sullivan, retired from the Marine Corps. He's still a senator. And he was the last member of the Senate who still wore the uniform. That's unusual in America's history. When I'm sworn in, God willing, to the U.S. Senate a year from now, I will still be Sergeant First Class Frank LaRose in the Army Reserve. And I think that's a perspective that matters. I want to ask you about Ukraine. So the Senate recently passed a $95 billion funding bill for Ukraine. Would you have voted for it? I have some deep concerns about that, and I would not have. I've been clear that budgets are all about priorities. Our priority right now needs to be our own national security and specifically on the on the southern border. Um, I'm also not somebody that, like Mr. Moreno, wants to just wave the white flag and say, hey, we surrender. We, you know, we don't have any involvement in there. I, I think that isolationism fails every time we try it, and actually results in bloodier and costlier situations abroad. I think America, as the world's most exceptional nation, can engage in ways beyond just throwing money at it. it feels like to the Biden administration, everything is solved with more spending. But they haven't always been willing to be accountable with that spending. They've resisted efforts to put an inspector general in charge, for example. There are things that we can do to bring this war to a quick end if we have somebody in the White House that has the courage to do it. For example, making sure that the sanctions are working. The Russians have found loopholes you could drive a truck through in the sanctions regime, and they're not working the way that they're supposed to. How about training Ukrainian warfighters? As an Army Green Beret, that's what we do, train foreign militaries so they can take on their own bad guys and we don't have to do it for them. Right now, the only country that's helping to train the Ukrainian fighters is Great Britain. We've got battalions of Green Berets in places like Fort Bragg and Fort Campbell that could just as easily be in Poland or Romania or Hungary in a very safe place and, and helping to train these Ukrainians to put them back into the fight so that this can end because a land war in Europe is not something that we want to allow to be dragged on. And I fear that what the Biden administration is doing by simply trying to throw money at the solution, uh, at the problem, is just going to drag it on. So it sounds like you could support 
some financial aid to Ukraine, but not the package that passed out of the Senate. What I've been clear about is I'm not going to put my cards on the table and tell Vladimir Putin what we're going to do or not going to do. One of my opponents, Mr. Dolan, has said, uh, you know, yeah, more money to Ukraine, more money to Ukraine. Mr. Moreno, on the other extreme, has said no money to Ukraine. What I'm saying is we need to be able to, to have the tools available to bring this to an expedient end. And if that means a modest and accountable investment, also for that matter, holding our NATO allies in Europe accountable to make sure they're doing what they need to do. Not everything is solved by more money, but this problem does need to be solved with American leadership. Does the death of Alexei Navalny like give any extra sense of urgency to the situation? Not only does it give urgency, but it shows you who the Putin regime is. I've followed Navalny for a long time, and this is a courageous man, a freedom fighter who died for his cause. And um, uh, that should get everyone's attention uh, about exactly who Vladimir Putin is. He was and is, a, as far as I'm concerned, a KGB agent and a bad actor on the on the world stage. I want to talk about the minimum wage. There's been some rumblings that supporters of a $15 an hour minimum wage might try to put the issues before voters. Would you support raising the minimum wage? Certainly not, and not in that way. This is another example of something that doesn't belong in a constitution. There have been uh, also— But it's already there. Well, and again, and this is something that should be handled by legislation. I admit that it is already there. But again, this is why Ohio has 70,000 words in our constitution and the U.S. constitution is 7,000 words. Uh, Listen, the markets are best positioned to set wages. And I believe that many families are struggling right now because wages have not risen to keep up with the cost of living. I think the market should take care of that. When government arbitrarily inserts itself into processes like these, they distort markets. And what they cause is more unemployment and they cause businesses to flee that jurisdiction, and in this case, the state of Ohio, which would be bad for all of us. What do you make of the argument that the minimum wage should be a living wage? Uh, you know, for most of us, um, minimum wage is not the thing that we aspire for. It's often somebody's first job, starting job, and that kind of thing. And I think that in many ways, it has a disparate impact on small businesses, a little locally owned restaurant or locally owned machine shop or something like that. Uh, again, I believe that the free market is the best way to set wages or prices for anything else for that matter. And I think that government interventions cause more harm than good. So you were on the commission that drew the boundary lines for our state house and our congressional seats. This is redistricting. So do you think that the process worked as voters intended it to? You know, I think there's always room for improvement. I think that with that has to come accountability. And my concern about the proposal that's now floating is that it- They're put, collecting signatures now, right? They're yeah. collecting signatures to put that on the ballot. And um, it would create this panel of so-called citizens, but who are they accountable to? Uh, are they- uh, are they held accountable in the sense that public officials are with financial disclosure so that you know who's giving them money and that kind of thing? And this idea that you're going to find truly nonpartisan individuals to do this work, I think really just forces partisans to pretend they're not. Uh, because most people, if they're going to devote six or eight months of their life to this process, are going to have an opinion. There's always going to be one side that loves and one side that loathes any particular redistricting process. Really, the goal should be to create more competitive districts. The ideal of American democracy is districts where uh, candidates uh, compete hard and uh, and then call and congratulate the winner on election night and 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 respect the will of the voters. Um, I, I want to see more competitive districts for one. And and this is not a perfect process, never has been anywhere, but it is always a political process. And to pretend that you can take the politics out of redistricting is like saying you can take the wetness out of water. It's always going to be a political process. We should acknowledge that. 
so even though inflation has fallen since its 2022 peak during the pandemic, many Ohioans still struggle with the cost of everything from groceries to housing. What, if anything, should the federal government be doing? Yeah, largely get out of the way. Listen, um, I was asked by a reporter just the other day, why do you say the economy's bad? Look at these economic statistics. The economy's great. Well, my rhetorical question back to her was, for who? Maybe if you live off of a uh, stock portfolio or a trust fund. But for those of us that earn a living, this economy is not great. And the solution is, well, what it's always been. In America, the secret success, secret to success in this country has always been hardworking people, great natural resources, and the freedom to make those work together. Uh, right now, the federal government is intervening in things it shouldn't intervene in. What I'm talking about is regulatory reform, getting the bureaucrats out of the way. But also, we need to make the tax cuts permanent in 2025 because when a multi-billion dollar tax cut expires, we have a name for that. It's a tax increase, and it would disproportionately hit small businesses and, uh, and working families families the most. That's something that we need to do. But we also need to invest in the smart things that government should do and do well and do efficiently. We're talking about infrastructure. We're talking about public safety. We're talking about education. Those really core functions, those constitutional functions of government, we need to invest wisely in those things. And then we need to get out of the way so the private sector can do what it does best. That was Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Anna. Coming up, State Senator Matt Dolan sits down with us to talk about why he might be the candidate you should pick. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. Ohio's U.S. Senate election could decide which party controls that chamber. And the one thing we know for certain is it's going to be an expensive fight. We're talking this hour with the three Republicans who want to take on Senator Sherrod Brown in November. Joining me now is State Senator Matt Dolan. He started his career in public service as an assistant state attorney general and later as the chief assistant prosecutor for Geauga County. He served three terms in the Ohio House, and he's currently a state senator where he chairs the finance committee, which basically means he has a big hand in writing Ohio's budgets. He's also a law professor a father and a stepfather, and part owner of the Cleveland Guardians. Senator Dolan, welcome to All Sides. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Anna. I want to begin our conversation on immigration. You rejected the Senate's bipartisan border security plan. Can you explain what you didn't like about it? Yeah. First of all, I'm I'm happy that they're getting in a room and trying to figure it out, but I think they haven't understand that it's no longer an issue, it's a crisis. And I think anytime you're going to come out of it with an immigration bill currently that does not seal the border, I think it's going to fall on its face. Because I think people around the country, around the state, want us to seal the border, make sure that we have all the security measures in place, a wall where necessary technology, border patrol that actually has law enforcement authority. I was down at the border and they, they one guy called himself a Walmart greeter. So you not only have to get more border patrol, but you have to give them the authority to act. We have to go to Mexico City and get the Mexican government to understand the cartels are a real problem. 
uh, and you need to help us root out the cartels. And, you know, we have aid and trade that we can hold in suspension. And then finally, we have to declare fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. It's not just a campaign slogan. What that does is allows us now to tell China, you know, we are going to block your shipments into Mexico uh, if it contains the ingredients to put uh, uh, what the cartels do to make fentanyl. So this is a period of time in which we can get our, our, our border together. Now, all of what I've said, except for the Mexico City and the uh, weapons of mass destruction, go back to 1995, and Bill Clinton said the exact same thing. So this has been a problem for a long time. So what I'm saying is any discussion that tries to solve every single problem under the immigration and border security sun will always fail. It's failed for 30 years. We have a patient that's bleeding out at the table, and we're talking about cosmetic surgery. we we got to stop the bleeding. Yeah. So the bill had several provisions, like it would allow the closure of the border when immigration hit a certain daily total. It also um, had provisions targeting fentanyl trafficking, including hauling chemical suppliers in China and the cartels in Mexico accountable. So is your solution like break this apart into smaller chunks? No, my solution would have been that's where they should have ended the bill. Mm. They should have said, we are not going to allow 5,000 encounters. We are going to seal and close the border. We are going to declare it a weapons of mass destruction because you can talk about doing that with China, but unless you meet the criteria to block a naval or to use naval ships to block a commercial uh, um, ship, you can't do it. So there are things I think if they had closed it down, I, I think we could have then built back up our immigration system. But trying to do everything at once gets nothing done. I do want to ask a broader question about how laws get passed, because we've had conversations about how policy is iterative and you get 20 percent of what you want now, another 20 and another 20 until you finally get your end goal. So why wasn't this a step in the right direction, even if it wasn't everything Republicans wanted? Well, so that's a great question. But I would say that the process should have been at that point, the House should have said, we reject that, not it's dead on arrival. Let's now get into a room because the House had HGR, HJR2, which did a lot of what I just talked about, and the Senate had their version. So as you know, in the State House, we come together and try to figure it out. So that's I'm frustrated with Republicans on that side, that they should have said, OK, that's your plan. Let's get in the room and figure it out. So you're seen as the alternative to Trump candidate, someone on par with, say, Nikki Haley. Is that a fair comparison? Uh, well, anytime you get compared to Trump, uh, there's a lot of factors in there. It's fair comparison if you're talking about personality. But if you're actually talking about Trump policies and Republican agenda and, and putting those into place, then, then, then I'm actually more like him than my opponents. Uh, I've cut taxes. I've reduced regulations. We've, I've expanded school choice. I've supported the police. These are all elements of a Republican agenda that Trump wrapped his arm around. I'm the one that's been talking about sealing and, and securing the border. So it, it, it's a matter for me and not about personality. It's a matter of getting things done. And, you know, for so long I've been fighting. You, you didn't you skipped over my private sector career where I've been a lawyer and I've been a bit owned businesses. So my whole professional career has been fighting, but I fight to get results. Too, too much now we're fighting without results, which means what? We're just shouting. And we're not getting anything done. So do you agree with the former president that there was 
major voter fraud in the 2020 election? I don't. I want to talk about the Alabama ruling uh, that frozen embryos are children and those who destroy them can be held liable for a wrongful death. Did the court make the right decision there? Well, look, I don't know all the facts that led to that decision, but I support IVF. Um, So if anything that's going to interfere with the ability for families to grow, I I think is a wrong decision. So if that has a negative impact on IVF, because the real story is what they closed down. Right. And so that's that's a bad result. So you opposed issue one in November, the Reproductive Rights Amendment. But you have broken with your party over the years and voted against certain abortion bills, like the heartbeat bill. Can you explain your position on the issue? Yeah, I don't know if I've broken with my party, but I've stayed consistent in my message. I have, as long as I've been in public office, I have said I am pro-life and I accept three exceptions, life of the mother, rape, and incest. So when a bill came before the legislature that did not have those three exceptions, I did not vote for it. Um, So I think in this now in the context of November 24 politics against Sherrod Brown, you know, I think my position on pro-life is more consistent with where Ohioans stand. And my opponent's positions, at least, who knows what they said today, but in the past they have said, Frank LaRose has said, I want a six-week national ban, and he's not sure about exceptions. Uh, Bernie has said, I want, I'm 100% pro-life, no exceptions. That's out of step with where Ohioans are. So, yeah, I've took some heat from my party, but, Anna, I always do what I think is best for Ohio. I'm not worried about my political career, and we need a little bit more of that in Washington, too. Should the issue be left to the states, or should, say, the Senate vote on a nationwide abortion access rule? Yeah, so I would prefer it stay in the states, but if we're going to have— groups that are going to push issue one-like agendas all around the country, um, that would bother me because while we hope it remains rare, there is a pathway to late-term abortion under the issue one law that's currently in our Constitution. If that became the norm around the country, that would bother me because I think that is out of step with where Ohioans are. Uh, But I'd prefer that the states work it out. There's going to be some growing pains, clearly. (laughs) So after the mass shooting in Dayton, you carried the Strong Ohio Bill. That was a package of gun control reforms aimed at keeping weapons, at least temporarily, out of the hands of people that the state determines to be dangerous. Now, I know that you've never called it a red flag law, but what do you say to Republican voters who see any kind of restriction on guns as unconstitutional? Well, let's back up. So Governor DeWine uh, put a package together and it concerned me that no one was going to introduce it. So I did. Um, the bill I would rather talk about is the bill I, I actually introduced. In the next GA. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Because to your point, I believe that the Second Amendment is an absolute right, uh, and I have a voting record that has protected it. I voted for concealed carry, constitutional carry, castle doctrine. But there are already six legal disabilities in the state law that prevent somebody from buying a gun or possessing a gun. So when you look at the suicidal and homicidal individual— who needs mental health help, isn't it equally makes sense then that that person should not be able to buy a gun so they can't commit the tragedy? And then if you look at gun violence around the state and look at who's committing the gun violence primarily, it's individuals who have those legal disabilities and should not have that gun. Uh, And because of shadow and straw purchasing, 
they're getting it. And so my bill was trying to say, hey, if you're suffering, let's get you mental health, can't buy a gun. If you, uh, let's, go, let's go harder on straw purchasers uh, to, to stop it. Because if someone, they're paying people to go in without disabilities to buy the gun, and then they give the gun to the person who does not have the disability. ATF told me that in 19, or excuse me, 2021, 30% of the guns that they seized uh, were bought by someone else than the, than the, than the criminal 90 days or less before the crime. Oh, wow. So if we are you talking about like straw purchases yes, or theft? Straw purchases. Okay. Where they determined that an individual bought that gun with, who did not have legal disability, but they bought it for the purposes of giving it to someone who does have a legal disability. And then that person, uh, 30% of that person's committed a crime within 90 days of that transaction. So these are guns are being bought by people who want to commit crimes. To the overall question, I, I think we got to understand that the Second Amendment is the, is a reasonable uh, protection, self-defense, but we can have reasonable discussions about how to have people not use the gun in a crime or in a tragedy. And just to be clear, um, your legislation that you introduced didn't have any ex parte hearings, which means it didn't have that you could hold the hearing, make a decision on the guns without the owner being present, correct? Correct. If you look at it, it has all the due process um, in, in the bill. Um, it also did something that, that actually did get passed. It created six regional mental health crisis centers around the state. And so, you know, because we all say after a tragic event, it's all about mental health okay, well, let's do something about mental health. And I did. I want to shift to Ukraine. So the Senate recently passed a $95 billion funding bill for Ukraine. Would you have voted for it? So it's a fair question, but it's hard for me to say what I would have done because I would have been there leading up to the vote. So I think things would be different. However, do I support uh, further uh, support for Ukraine? I do. Uh, and and I'm, I'm unique in this race. You know, Vladimir Putin is our enemy. Uh, we made an agreement with Ukraine in 1994 that you dismantle your nuclear weapons. And we will help you if Russia invaded. Well, here we are. Russia has invaded. Uh, and I know this. You and your listeners and Americans are safer when our enemies and our allies know America keeps its word. So we do have a responsibility to be there. They don't want American boots on the ground. But if we concede to Putin... We're going to have American boots on the ground in Poland and the Baltics. And I have two nephews who are in the service right now. So if we can keep them out of a hot war, I want to do that. Do you think House Speaker Mike Johnson is making a mistake by refusing to take the funding up? Look, again, it's, it's hard for me to judge from afar. But going back to my earlier answer, I do think it's always a mistake if you aren't willing to get into a room and figure it out and talking back and forth to each other through the media is not getting it done. This is the only business that you have, you can't take ownership. You, you don't have to take ownership. I mean, no other business can you say it's the, someone else's fault why things didn't get done. I want to take ownership of issues because if you take ownership of it, you get it done. You have to prepare for the show. If the show doesn't work, you can't blame other people. <laughs> That's what politicians should be like. So even though inflation has fallen since its 2022 peak during the pandemic, many Ohioans still struggle with everything from groceries to housing. What, if anything, should the federal government be doing to help? 
Yeah, well, thank you for the question because that is right. The numbers may say one thing, but the reality on the ground is quite another. So the first thing we need to do is do what I did in Ohio, and that's create an economic climate for, for growth, for more revenue. Uh, and because more revenue means more people are working, more people are investing, uh, and it creates a better market that drives prices down. We also have to be smarter as a government um, because we need the the inefficient spending of dollars help it puts more dollars into the system where a it's not correcting a problem or not doing enough, but it is driving up the cost of things. So, federal government can play a role, but the but the market allowing the market to work and having a government that creates a climate for a good market is really what needs to happen. So as uh, one of the people who helped write Ohio's budgets over the last couple of years, you've also overseen the reduction in state income taxes, right? We've been collapsing those income tax brackets. And now there's talk of getting rid of the state income tax completely. So as someone who spent a lot of time with the budget, is that a good idea? It's a worthwhile goal. Um, uh, You know, the, the other side of budgeting is you have responsibilities to meet. Uh, and, of course, in the, in the state of Ohio, we have education responsibilities. We have Medicaid responsibilities. We have— That's like two-thirds of the budget right there. Exactly. So it's a worthwhile goal, uh, but you don't want to just pass the buck to the locals. You know, if we, if we get rid of the—if we, we go down to zero and we're not—and our expenses exceed that revenue, well, it's going to cause taxes to go up elsewhere. So— you know, I think there's room to go even lower, but it, it's going to take time. Final question. Uh, where do you come down on raising the minimum wage? There's some rumors about $15 an hour maybe as a ballot initiative. Yeah, so I am not f- for uh, raising the min- minimum wage through a ballot initiative. I think the minimum wage should reflect, uh, you know, cost of living and things like that. But I do not think the minimum wage is a is supposed to be a livable wage, uh, and I think we need to get away from that. That we want we want people to be introduced into the workforce. We want young people to be introduced into the workforce, and we want employers to bring in young people. But if the minimum wage is artificially inflated, it just raises the cost of everything else. So minimum wage is is a wage to get you into the workplace. It's not supposed to be a living wage. If we artificially raise it without reflection to other issues in the economy, it'll end up costing individuals more. That was State Senator Matt Dolan. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that'll do it for this Hour of All Sides on 89.7 NPR News.